We're going to look at a strange bit of words from Jesus' mouth today, and it's found in Mark 7. No surprise there. We've been going through Mark's gospel, but we're arriving at a place where he says some things that would cause people to ask, did he just call that woman a dog? It's a strange passage. So turn, if you would, to Mark chapter 7. We're going to look at verses 24 through 30. There are things that lately people have been calling third rail words and I learned one of those because back in high school somebody taught me a word in a different language and I thought it meant yowza or wow and so I was helping a guy work on his Chevy Nova in his driveway and he got it running and I said that word thinking that I was exclaiming yay yowza that's great and he said that's not what you think it means and I said, what does it mean? He goes, you don't want to know. He said, just don't ever say that, ever. <laughs> so somebody was pulling a prank on me because they knew that I would probably use a word like that at the right time, thinking I was saying the right word. And it sounded similar to the word that means yowza, but it was a little bit different. So fortunately, he did not take offense at me because he knew me and my character enough, and he warned me not to use that word so that I wouldn't get in trouble. So when we read this passage in Mark 7, where Jesus appears to be referring to a woman as a dog, is that what he's really doing? Did somebody teach him a wrong word in Aramaic or something? And then he says, oh, okay, well, eh. no, he knew the languages. He did this on purpose. So why would he call somebody a dog? Or at least infer that they belong to a people group that were referred to as a dog. Why would he do that? In our culture, these days, there are more third-rail words than ever. And if you use one of them in the inappropriate place or in front of the wrong people, they will fry you on social media because that's what the third-rail means. It's getting hard to know which words we can and can't use because words have changed in their meanings and people have some things that they attach to certain words. So that if you say something thinking that you know what you mean, it can really offend people in a heartbeat. It can cause an uproar. Like that pastor that I mentioned last week, he had put out what he thought was a nice middle-of-the-road peacemaking blog post, and he did so while he was on his vacation. He said he had so many hateful comments coming into his phone that he just wanted to toss his phone into the ocean, <laughs> including one of his own high school buddies that he'd gone to school with who called him a Marxist. So he, was, he knew this guy well enough that I liked the pastor's response. He said to this guy, hey, you and I both went to the same school, and I know you didn't pay attention enough to even know what a Marxist is. <laughs> I didn't pay attention. I had to look that up. So where did you get that word? You picked it up from somewhere. Somebody fed it to you, or your tribe fed it to you, and you're using it like ammunition simply because I said something that triggered something that puts you in a different category because of this tribe you're hanging out with. He said, but you and I both know each other well enough. We should be able to have this conversation about the matter, the issues that really matter. And we're both adults, not to mention the fact that we're both professing Christians, which means that we have the Holy Spirit at work in our hearts. We ought to be able to discuss these things like adults. So I was glad that he said that. There are third rail, rail words, though, and Jesus used a few of them. We have already seen where he said a few things that really ticked some religious leaders off big time, especially when it came to the Pharisees, because they were nitpicky about a lot of things. Some of his words got angry responses. 
Now, when I was growing up, we used to call these red flag words, mostly because I grew up in the desert of Phoenix. We didn't have any subways. Uh, we had an Amtrak train that might have run somewhere miles from where I lived, but we didn't know what a third rail was. But if you waved a red flag in front of a bull, you can better be sure he's probably going to charge you and you're liable to get gored. So that was a red flag word for us. The third rail word, of most everybody knows what that means now, though that's the electrical rail, the one that provides the power to that train, and it's high voltage, and I mean hot, hot, hot. So let's look at this passage, Mark 7, 24 through 30, and find out why Jesus would intentionally use what would be either a red flag or a third rail hot word. I'm reading from the New Living Translation this time. And as I get partway through, I'm going to show you how looking at multiple translations can help clear up some question marks that come as we're reading. All right, Mark 7, verse 24. Then, meaning after that previous discussion he had had about the disciples not doing certain external hand-washing and other cleansing observances, not for hygiene, but for religious purposes, he left Galilee and went north to the region of Tyre. Some of your Bibles will probably say Tyre and Sidon because they were twin cities and they were up over near the Mediterranean Sea and they often used those two together. He didn't want anybody to know which house he was staying in, but he couldn't keep it a secret. <laughs> Big surprise there. That seems to be happening to him a lot here. Right away, a woman who had heard about him came and fell at his feet. Her little girl was possessed by an evil spirit. Now, let me stop right here for a second because this is where looking at two different translations can help us. If you were to read just the NIV version in the next two verses, 26 and 27, there's still a big question mark about a couple of these things. Let me read it from the NIV. Verse 26. The woman was a Greek born in Syrian Phoenicia. She begged Jesus to drive the demon out of her daughter. And then verse 27, Jesus says this. Hmm. First let the children eat all they want, he told her, for it's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Now if you only got that much, and it was from the NIV, I still have quite a few questions because I would think, why would Jesus launch into a parable like that about bread and children and dogs and things like that. It just doesn't seem to make sense. But if you read it from the NLT, the New Living Translation, listen to how this comes across. She begged him to cast out the demon from her daughter. Since she was a Gentile born in Syrian Phoenicia, Jesus told her, first I should feed the children, my own family, the Jews. Aha. It isn't right to take food from the children and throw it to the dogs. There's a clue. There's a good clue for us. Since she was a Gentile, meaning a Greek, which is the word that all these Jews would call anybody who's a non-Jew, they just kind of use it as a catch-all word, oh, those Greeks. A Syrophoenician woman, somebody born in Syrian Phoenicia, Jesus answers her question with a parable. And it was a parable about a difference between Jews and Gentiles. There's the context for us. And her response shows us that she actually understood this parable and saw where Jesus was going. Like that guy that I was helping him work on his Chevy Nova. He got what I was trying to say, and he didn't castigate me for it, and he didn't tweet anything, because we didn't have Twitter back then anyway. But he didn't create a controversy around what I said, and neither did this lady. She didn't fire back and say, 
How dare you compare me to a people group that's compared with dogs? She, she replied instead, verse 28, Well, that's true, Lord. Can you hear the humility there? That's true, Lord. But even the dogs under the table are allowed to eat the scraps from the children's plates. And Jesus' response to her response shows that he saw something important in how she answered and that he saw humility and a willingness to accept his parable because he said, good answer. Now go home, for the demon has left your daughter. And when she arrived home, she found her little girl lying quietly in bed, and the demon was gone. Isn't that great? Let's pray and ask God to reveal some truth to us and apply this passage to us. Father, it's so good to look into your word, and we know that each time we open it, light emanates from it. And I pray that that light will go right into us and reveal what needs to be changed in our own hearts and lives, perhaps even about certain prejudices that we might have held on to and we tend to deny, but it's still there. So whatever it is you're trying to speak to us about, I pray that you'll do that right now as we look into your word. Thank you for doing that. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So where's Jesus going with this? We need to go mining for a few apples here, mining for gold. We're going to go apple picking in this beautifully crafted, artistically crafted silver basket. Uh, for context to that, look at Proverbs 25:11, Or you can go back and listen to my messages from August 21st and August 28th, where I explained that. He's heading toward Tyre and Sidon. Jesus had encountered some Pharisees and scribes. They were upset. He's leaving them and the other crowds and heading up north now from Galilee. And he's trying to withdraw again. Each time he tries it, the crowds tend to follow him. They're finding out that he's a miracle worker and they want to see what's going on with him. This is the same. And so let me give you a map of Tyre and Sidon and Ann Arbor side by side for comparison so you can kind of see it would be similar to leaving maybe the eastern side of Ann Arbor or even Ipsy where we are and going up and over the top of Ann Arbor and up maybe 23 toward Brighton where we have some of the Brighton boys that come and hang out with us sometimes. Thank you, Brighton people. Uh, we actually include people from Tyre and Sidon in our congregation. And as we see, Jesus was a man on a mission. And also from that, you can see that they were going to be heading ultimately towards Caesarea Philippi, which would be somewhere down around maybe South Lyon or so. So they're going to get there, but they first stop off here because they're just trying to find a little time for some retreat. Now, Caesarea Philippi is a really cool place because that's where Peter makes his great confession when Jesus says, who do people say that I am? They told him, and then Peter says, ah, but you are the Christ the son of the living God. Caesarea Philippi is a really nifty place. In fact, Joy and I got to visit Caesarea Philippi. It's called by a couple of different names there. Some people still refer to it by that name. And here we are in a picture standing in a niche that's carved right out into a hillside. And that is a place that they probably had the statue to the god Pan. Pan was the god of nature and of everything that was in the universe that has to do with living things. And so if they thought that God was in everything, then that means that they were pantheistic, which is where pantheism comes from. So the God Pan is in this area. It's so interesting to see all that went into why Jesus taught these things in that specific location. We're going to get to some of that in chapter 8, but we're not quite there yet. 
One of the things that they had there is this big gushing artesian well where a lot of the snow melts right off of Mount Hermon. And it comes down and just pushes right through the rock. And then there's some gorgeous pools that come out there where people can be led by the still waters. And there are these things that would bust right through the rock so that Jesus would say, oh, and not even the gates of hell will prevail against the church. It won't stop this offensive forward motion of the church. Why would he say that? Because the place where the uh, rocks were broken in half by the water that came gushing out there, the nickname was Hell's Gate. He was probably talking to them at that location when he gave that specific teaching, which shows the power of the church of those who are following Jesus Christ. So, Jesus doesn't turn this lady away. I love this. We see this time and again. He's tired. He's tuckered out. I'm sure he's emotionally exhausted. He's probably physically exhausted. He just wants to find a quiet place for a minute. But does he? Is he able to do that? Uh, how about verse 25? How long does it take before somebody comes to him? Right away. So the answer is no. He doesn't find a place. And he doesn't turn her away. We can see this compassionate Savior. Reminds me of my wife sometimes. There was a time in Whitmore Lake when we lived up there. And a young lady came by. And Joy just kind of discerned that this lady was getting right down deep into some of the major issues that she needed to tackle so that she could have some big shifts in her life's focus. And she didn't want to turn her away even though it was getting late. And she could have said, can we pick this up next week? Because we need to go to bed. But instead, she said to me, honey, why don't you go on to bed? And I'm just going to stay up here and talk for a little bit longer. And she did so. And I don't think she came to bed until about 2.30 in the morning. And she didn't send that lady out in the middle of the night. She made a little bed for her on the couch, got a, a blanket for her, an extra pillow, and said, you just go ahead and sleep here tonight and you can go home tomorrow because I don't want you out that late. But there was something important that was going on, and Joy recognized it, and so she spent the extra time, even though she too was pretty exhausted. And that's what Jesus does, and he does it time and time again. And some of you all have been extremely limited in how much you have to give, and you've been in jobs where they keep firing different people, and you're left doing the job of six people, and you don't know what to do with yourself. I get it. We understand what that's like, and it's horrific sometimes. And you feel like, I just need to be cloned. Can you put me into a machine that goes, and there's six of me? Now I can do the work. Sometimes we just have to pass off the work into somebody else's capable hands, though. I had to do that just not too long ago, in fact. Uh, another couple wanted me to do some pre-marriage counseling with them, but they live in a nearby town, and they don't go to my specific church here. And I thought, man, my schedule is so cram-packed that I don't think I can do that with one other couple. So I called the pastor of that church. I happen to know him. He's actually spoken for you before. And I explained to him what's going on. And they have a couple in their church that does the same pre-marriage counseling tool that I use. And so they were able to take this couple on. And I hope that they'll make a connection because they're in the same town. So it makes more sense to do that. That's the kingdom of God at work, the body of Christ. And so when all of us are putting forward what we have to work with, even though sometimes it feels like we're limited, God has a way of spreading the wealth around because we're all gifted differently. So to the Jews back in Jerusalem, let's look at some prejudicial things going on here and why Jesus said what he did about dogs. The word Syrophoenician was a red flag or a third rail word to the Jews. This woman was a Greek, a non-Jew, and the term Syrophoenician refers to a race of people. Now, Syrophoenician is not the race, but they came from the Canaanite background over near Phoenicia, and the Canaanites were considered an ethnic group. So it was almost like an ethnic slur for somebody to say, ah, oh, that Canaanite. 
They would say it by gritting their teeth when they would speak that things, those words because they came from a kind of a barbaric group of people uh, a long time earlier. And then when they came in from those maritime people off the Mediterranean, they came east and they, of course, were worshiping lots of different gods, including the god Pan. So the Jews just figured, these people are pagans, they're heathens, we don't want anything to do with them. And that's where this lady comes from. She comes from that people group. So she asks Jesus to help her because her daughter is in need. She's possessed by an evil spirit. And the way it's worded, she's begging, and it's in that continual tense, which means that she doesn't relent. She just keeps asking and keeps asking it like a four-year-old that wants that apple. You know, they just keep it up until they finally get what they want. Now, Jesus later will show that he thinks that's not necessarily a bad trait. Persistence in prayer can be a really good thing. And this lady was petitioning him, and she was doing so persistently. So Matthew's gospel gives us a little clue. I love this thing when you get to be a super sleuth and you see that there are a couple of other things that fold together in Matthew and Mark's gospel because Matthew's gospel reveals a couple of facts that Mark doesn't. Uh, for example, when the woman approached Jesus in Matthew's version, it says she called out to him, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me and then made her request. Aha. That's a big clue, and it shows that she had some faith in this person and felt that she knew pretty well who he might even be. So some would think that Jews should not have a rabbi talking with a woman like that simply because she's a woman, and Joy and I experienced that when we were in Israel. Joy was trying to go up and ask a guy to move out of the way, so she'd go to the bathroom on the airplane on her way to Israel, and he treated her like she was a non-entity, didn't pay the least bit of attention. And then, because she just really wasn't aware, hadn't been briefed about how you're not supposed to act, you don't touch one of those Orthodox Jews. And so she just kind of would do like she would do around here for some of us and just kind of gently nudge him on the shoulder to ask him if he could step aside so she could get into the bathroom because he was standing right there. And oh my goodness, you would have thought she had slapped him in the face. <laughs> he turned, turned his back on her and just acted extremely rude. That's what Jesus was dealing with with some of these kinds of folks. And Jesus never stopped talking to a woman. He did that with the woman at the well. He did it to the woman who was caught in adultery. Other people were there. So that's not the issue for him. It's not because she was a woman that they felt that he shouldn't talk to them, although some probably felt that he shouldn't, but because she was a Canaanite. That was the big issue here. This is where the prejudice really came into play. And yet, for those of us who know about these prejudices, people would still say, did Jesus just call this woman a dog? And why would he do so? They would say, that's not very Christ-like. I love it when people think that Jesus is not very Christ-like. It's <laughs> ironic. Remember that guy that I told you about who heard me say that word that somebody had taught me? He did not take offense at me, and this lady did not take offense at Jesus because I think she knew, perhaps even by the tone of his voice, and by the words he chose, that he was actually on her side, like that song we said. He's for us. He's not against us. And she could tell that Jesus was for her and not against her. He says, first, I should feed the children, which is a euphemism for God's children, a.k.a. the Israelites, the Jews. It isn't right to take food from the children and throw it to the dogs. Now, there are a couple of different words for dogs. And a lot of times the Jews would use the, the dog term like a junkyard or a wild dog. You junkyard dog. 
you wild hyena, whatever it is that they might have used. They, they thought of those Gentiles as being dogs like that. But let me paint a different picture for you, and this is the one that I think the lady got. Uh, I had actually had this happen to me. I shared this with you several years ago that while I was on tour in college with a group, I was in Northern Europe, happened to be in Denmark specifically, and I silently was hoping for some more ice cream because we were young college-age kids with hollow legs and we could eat a lot of ice cream. And she had given us some thin slices from the carton and put it on a plate and it was nice, you know, there's four or five good bites of ice cream in there. But there was a lot left in the carton and I'm thinking, man, I sure would like some of that. And so sure enough, she reaches over there with a knife and she's looking around all of our plates and I'm thinking, she's getting the hint. She's getting the hint. And she get, cuts this big inch thick slice of ice cream and I'm going, yes. Going to get our, our second helping of ice cream. And she gets the plate and starts to hold it out and goes down onto the floor with it. And there's her little puppy wagging that little Danish tail. And that dog, that little puppy, ate better than we did. And I would think, man, it must be nice to be a dog in Denmark. And that's, in a sense, what Jesus is saying by this, that you are like one of the puppies because, yes, there's a whole table set, and it's for the people of Israel, the Jews, first. And yet, God's plan is that the Jews came first in God's order of priority, but the Jews were not a monopoly. In Jesus' conversation with this Syrophoenician woman, God was continuing to reveal his plan as seen in the Old Testament. That through Abraham's descendants, through his seed, all of these nations would be blessed ultimately. So it starts with the Jews, but it doesn't end with the Jews. He's going to do something amazing through the Israelites so that ultimately everybody can benefit because this gospel can go out to every nation, tribe, and tongue. Now, we also see something in the New Testament that Paul wrote about. He picks up on this thought, and he says, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, because it's the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. Can you see how he's furthering this concept? God's plan has been that plan all along. He starts by revealing it to the Jews, and then he passes it along so the children of the family first and then to the dogs indicates that this lady is one of the beloved puppies seated at the foot of the master and after the others have been invited to the table and they've been offered freely that wonderful banquet, there's still enough for everybody and God's grace abounds even to the little puppies who get to eat better than some of the other folks had. So she would be included in the feast after many of the lost children of Israel had been offered first dibs, so to speak. So she demonstrated both gratitude and humility. And she does so by the way she responds to Jesus. And Jesus recognizes that. She sees this as a woman of faith and of humility. She didn't demand anything. She was quickly willing to say, if I get to be second in line, I don't care. I just need you to take care of my problem. My daughter is in need. Can you help? I'm willing to submit myself to whatever authority you have. Our high school band director, this is what reminded me about Joaquin and some of the stuff he's been involved with. Our high school band director was given an invitation by the band director at Arizona State University. It's a renowned university in our Valley of the Sun that two trombonists on one particular Saturday would be allowed to go in there and play with the ASU pep band at the rodeo 
in the Phoenix Coliseum, which is a huge indoor stadium. And uh, so he said, would you guys like to accept that invitation? And my friend Mark, who's also a pastor's son, and he's now a minister of music at a church in the valley, and he and I were trombonists together, and we said, yes, thank you very much. But it was one of those terrifying honors that you think we're honored to be able to be asked to do that, but we've never played at that level before. And this is in a big arena, and we don't know how many other people are going to be there. And we didn't have time to memorize our music or look at it ahead of time. We had to sight read. So this is a little challenging, and it's a little daunting. And we get there, and we did have a little time to warm up and play through a couple of things with them before everybody started streaming in. Fortunately, they had quite a few other players there. So if we were really uncertain about a passage and if we didn't play for a couple of measures, it was going to get covered up all right. But we did that, and it was really challenging because we were trying to read these tiny little folios stuck on the lyre on your instrument and keep one eye on the director because you're supposed to stop the minute the guy falls off the horse or the bull. So it starts, and they don't do them mamby-pamby. It's like... No, it's like... And you've got to stop your instrument the minute the guy falls off the bull because the announcer has got stuff to say and you can't be playing over the announcer. Whew, it was nerve-wracking. And so we went away exhilarated from the experience and yet we were a little bit challenged as well. And we were so honored because it felt like we had been allowed to get off the porch and run with the big dogs for a couple of hours. And I suspect that maybe this woman was feeling honored that Jesus would continue to meet her need and deal with her the way he did. And she clearly was not offended, even though she lumped her and the Canaanites into that people group that would be considered the dogs. So she probably thought, yeah, we're not worthy. But isn't that what God wants from everybody? He needs all of us to recognize there's nothing that I can do that would earn salvation or your grace. It's all about your grace and so I just submit myself humbly into your care. And she did that. We uh, have a friend who traveled quite a bit for her business. And she got to this one flight and she had heard somebody murmuring going around through the gate that the flight had been overbooked. You know how that happens these days. So she was just so fearful that since she was one of the last to get her tickets that she would get bumped off that flight. And sure enough, they called her name and said, so-and-so, would you come to the desk? And she did. She got up to the desk. And she was so waiting for that person to say, I'm so sorry, but we've had to fill all these seats ahead of time. And so we're going to give you a standby ticket, and you'll need to go and wait over here because you're going to have to catch the next flight that comes out in three hours. She was so worried about that. And sure enough, the, the lady started by her spiel saying, um, we've had to make a couple of changes. And she's going, oh, and we have had to shift a couple of things around. So we've had to move, and she's thinking again, ah, you from your original seat into first class, if you're okay with that. Well, yeah, I think that probably I'd be okay with that. And she's thinking, that never happens. It was so wonderful. They're bringing me these hot towels to put on. I mean, wow, what an experience. So sometimes I feel like we can look at something with a third rail word and think we know what it's talking about. And I've actually seen on YouTube some pastors who have unfortunately really botched interpreting this passage. And they think that he was actually giving her a racial slur by calling her a dog. He's not. 
He's lumping her into the category of these sweet puppies who says, yes, and I'm going to throw open the gates of heaven wide open. We're going to move you from coach to first class if you're willing. And she was willing because she humbled herself according to what Jesus was doing. So let me wrap up with this because it's important for Paul to show us that these rewards that get given first to the Jew and then to the Gentile also gets expanded into not just the good kinds of rewards, but there's also some anger and wrath that comes in the end times that God's going to be pouring out on people. Romans 2 gives us this summary. Two chapter, uh, chapter 2, verse 8. But he, God, will pour out his anger and wrath on those who live for themselves, who refuse to obey the truth, and instead live lives of wickedness. And I would say, that could even include religious people. That could even include people like the Pharisees and the Sadducees who thought they had the corner on the market. They thought they had a monopoly. They thought, oh, no matter what happens, we're the chosen people. We've got it made in the shade, even though their inner lives were filled with wickedness and dead men's bones, as Jesus would point them out. He says in verse 9, there will be trouble and calamity for everyone who keeps on doing what is evil including people who thought they were religiously secure. For the Jew first, and also for the Gentile. You see how this, so they're both the good rewards and the bad rewards, if you want to call them that. And then verse 10, but there will be glory and honor and peace from God for all who do good. And this is not to earn salvation. This is the good, we clearly see it in the other writings of Paul, that emanate from them being saved. It's because they're saved that they're doing good for the Jew first, and also for the Gentile. And then this is the, the kicker. For God does not show favoritism. And that's one of the great takeaways from this passage. He doesn't show favoritism. He was willing to pour out his grace even to this Canaanite woman, which was astounding. And if you had been a Jew back in the first century, you would have known how astounding this really was. So he's willing to throw some third rail words out there. And he knew that some people were going to be deeply offended by that. But those were the people who thought they had the corner on the market. And they're probably going to stand before God one day and he'll say, I never knew you. Here's another third rail word, perhaps the hottest third rail word of all. And he says in John 14, 6, no one comes to the Father except through me. That's a hard one for people to swallow. But Jesus said it. I believe he said it. There's corroborative evidence with eyewitnesses going way back early in the time when all these things took place so that it was written down. I think he said it, and I think he meant it. No one comes to the Father except through me. So here's the big question for all of us. How do I respond to those words? Do I accept them immediately? Do I question them? Am I offended by them? Maybe Jesus' interactions with this Gentile woman can help us understand how he freely offers that grace to everybody. And he's going to give everybody a great opportunity to see the truth. And that's why we need to be a part of this evangelistic effort to help spread the good news to other people as well. He wants everybody to hear the good news. That's why Jesus started telling everybody after his death, burial, and resurrection, now go and tell everybody, including the Gentiles. Up until that time, it was always go to the Jews first, but then after his death and burial and resurrection, he says, go into all the world so that everybody can hear it. We have the same invitation to the great banquet table when Jesus returns 
or if we die and go to heaven first. Depends on what our warranty says. But I think probably it's not going to matter whichever is happening. Those of us who are in Christ are going to be ecstatic about that. And I want everybody, I just want everybody to hear it and respond to it as this woman did with humility and being grateful that he has extended that invitation to us. Let's pray together. Father, it's my desire that everybody can hear this good news, the gospel, and respond positively to it. And we can see all through history, especially those in the book of Acts who responded to it, that your true church grew exponentially and quickly because they clearly got it. They understood Jesus is the promised Messiah. He really did live a sinless life. He was killed even though he was sinless and didn't deserve it. He died a criminal's death, but he did so on our behalf. And he took all the sins of every sinner upon himself. He was buried. He stayed there for three days and then rose again, conquering death and sin once and for all. Father, I want so many people to grasp this simple gospel. And I pray that if there's anybody who's hearing this and your spirit is convicting them and saying, yes, I want you to respond to that, I pray that they will. And I pray that they will say, God, I need that. I need you. I want you to invade my heart and mind through the Holy Spirit. Transform me to be more like you. I want to walk with you the rest of my days and into eternity because you'll have a place for me in heaven. Father, thank you that you were willing to put out some third rail words to people who got offended because they were the wrong kind of people to understand what you were really truly all about. And your grace abounds and you want so much for people to be related to you as an adopted child. And I pray that people will have been adopted into your kingdom by hearing this truth. Continue to speak to us through your word as we continue to gather regularly and look into it so that you can continue that transformation process in all of us. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.